Last week, I gave you a theological overview of the Lord's Supper based upon a confession. I gave you a few bullet points and giving you some of the topics that you and I should be aware of as we discuss this uh, topic, the Lord's Supper. The importance of it, the Lord's Supper, is derived from the fact that, as you have seen, the Lord, on the night that He was betrayed, He could have done and said many different things. But He gave the Lord's Supper to us as means of grace to sustain us in His grace. That's, that's why it is important. And I briefly shared my own growth in grace and for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, as our confession says. Signs, as you know, point to the reality. Signs are there, as Jesus said, to remember me, my death, my blood. But as we have seen, the Catholic Church and Lutheran Church, what did they do? They were equating the signs with the substance. And when that happens, what they are really doing is they are elevating the elements into God level. The created realities such as simple bread and wine, but through their deification, making them like God, now they are elevating simple bread and wine as objects of worship. So superstition and idolatry happened throughout medieval Catholicism, their history. There was theological overview. Some of the things that we should be aware of today was really the second part of the last sermon, but I've expanded a bit. But again, it was kind of long. So again, we will use these verses next Sunday. But what I want you to hear today is a historical overview. Last month, not, the, the, not July, but June, when we were celebrating the Lord's Supper, in passing, I made a comment that more people were burned at the stake because of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper than any other doctrines during the English Reformation. So today, historical overview today, what I want you to hear is not from the entire Christian history, but about the English Reformation and what happened during those times. It is English Reformation. I know some of you know that. But vast majority of Christians probably will not have much of an idea what that is. I remember the first time that I was exposed to it, was in seminary level. 
There were so many characters in the story, different timelines, all kinds of complicated issues. I just couldn't take it. Best introduction for the English Reformation would be watching a movie. <laughs> I am serious. Watch a movie or documentary, whatever source that you could get, that is the best introduction. But I want you to think about Europe at this time. Lutheran Reformation, that's what we are familiar with. 95 Theses, Wittenberg in Germany. But look at Luther's lifetime. 1483 through 1546 is his birth and death. That's Germany. You move your lens to England. At the same time, there was a man named King Henry VIII. His timeline is 1491 through 1547. Those two men, their lifetime, they overlap. So while Lutheran Reformation was going on in continental Europe, you move your camera to England, there is something that we know of as English Reformation is happening in England. You know what the difference is? Continental Reformation, as I've said, happened in many different cities, states, or other regions. So there are multiple Reformations happening. So if something happens and what in continent, what can you do? You could always run away. England is, as you know, is an island. You cannot run away. That's the difference. Life or death. So the Germany, Luther was able to take his Reformation uh, apart and away from the Pope because there was a protector for him, Frederick III, Elector of Saxony. It was in his interest to protect Luther and not give him away, though there were multiple requests from Rome to give him and transport him to Rome. But this prince, the elector of Saxony, would not give him up. Why? Because through controversy, their new city, new college, new university, University of Wittenberg, was being famous through that Reformation debates. Now, let's go to English uh, uh, Reformation. Henry VIII married six times, as you know, and it was his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Uh, she's from Spain, what is now Spain. She wanted, he wanted to get his divorce, but in order for him to do that, he needed permission from whom? The Pope. You may ask, why can't he just divorce? Get a divorce. He's the king, right? He's the, he's the most powerful man. Well, the structure of the society and the nobles at the time, and to save his face, everything has to be uh, considered. So he needs the permission, the annulment of marriage, that, that certificate from Pope. But Pope will not grant him that. Why? You have to know at the time, who is the superpower in Europe? Spain is, and France is. Those two countries, and at the time, they had this loose alliance, as you know, Holy Roman Empire. And people say it, is, it was none of those. It was not holy, it was not Roman, it was not empire. But anyway, from Spain to Italy, 
these electors will elect like what they do now for pope. The electoral college will meet and cast a vote, and the most powerful man will be, well, at least in, in on paper, he will be the Holy Roman Emperor. So, Spain and France, they are traditionally Catholic countries. At the time when Henry VIII, he came into power, England was a small and weak country. It was not uh, Victorian England, uh, the, 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 the empire, British empire. No, he was a, it was a small island, weak, and he will start building royal navy that will compete with Spain later. So this was the very early stage. So marriages are done through alliances, political reasons, military reasons, and at this time, Pope does not want to grant that annulment of marriage because Catherine of Aragon would be the, one of the most devout Catholic women at the time. So throughout his life, uh, Henry VIII, he will seek alliance with whom? He was always afraid that there would be invasion from France or Spain, but literally from France. So throughout his life, he would always seek the alliance with Lutheran princes of the continent. So anyway, so there goes that we know of English Reformation. Reformation really happens by separating himself from the Church of Rome. But just there are six marriages, some of you know. Catherine of Aragon, and second wife would be Anne Boleyn, and Right, through that marriage, the first one he wanted to break away, Anne Boleyn. Through Anne Boleyn, what's interesting is that Anne Boleyn later would be executed, literally, uh, through the charges of adultery and treason. But through Anne Boleyn, the Boleyn family, somebody that you know of will come into power as well, Thomas Cranmer. Uh, who becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. But as you know, these ladies, when they come into power, whoever is behind that family will also come into power. So Boleyn family will come into power in the second marriage. The third marriage will be Jane Seymour. Fourth marriage will be with Anne of Cleves. Anne of Cleves was a German princess. Why? Because they, once again, they wanted to make an alliance. But what's interesting about this fourth marriage is, how would you do the marriage at the time? How would you introduce German princess to English king? Through the portraits. Think about it, there's no picture. How would you describe her? So the matchmaker, as you know, was Thomas Cromwell, the second man in charge, the most powerful man under Henry. So they gave the portrait of Anne of Cleves, but when she arrived, she didn't look like that portrait. Guess what happens? Thomas Cromwell would be beheaded. <laughs> Literally, really. That's what happens. And Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr. So those six marriages. But as you know, there were a few children. Catherine of Aragon, um, she really was devout, devout woman. Uh, with Henry and the first wife, the first child was someone called Mary. Second child would be Elizabeth 
as you know, the Queen Elizabeth with the second wife, Anne Boleyn. Third child would be Edward, a boy king. Edward VI with Jane Seymour, the third wife. So first and second and the third wife with them. Henry VIII will have few children. What's interesting about that is, uh, when you look at his life, he is King uh, Henry VIII is seeking reformation. So reformation, as we know of, as from break away from Church of Rome, and seeking his own self-interest will always overlap. People say he was a womanizer. In certain sense, it was true. But what you cannot miss is that these wives, these ladies, they have to do one thing for King Henry. What is that? They have to produce an heir, boy. Without producing an heir, as you know, as, that, as, as you see this history, the ladies will die, or will be, the, the marriage will be annulled, and the next one will come. So it is very important that they produce a male heir for the king. Why? Because without male heir, the throne will be destroyed. Someone else will take it away. So at the end of the day, Henry only cares about his throne. That's it. That's the bottom line. Nothing else. His throne. And everybody else will die or trying to give him an heir. But God's providence was that after Henry VIII dies, his son will come into power, Edward VI. Young boy. He goes up to uh, the throne when he was nine years old, and by the time he was 15, he will die. Why is that important? Because during that time, the Reformation will be carried on, because Edward VI will be pro-Reformation king. But he dies at the age of 15. And next in line is whom? After the lady... Uh, uh, trying to take over a few days, what the second in line would be that Mary, the first child uh, of King Henry with Catherine of Aragon. She saw what happened to her mommy, how these pro-Reformation people try to uh, basically kill her, put her away. So we may not know what exactly what her intentions were, but there is resentment toward the Reformation side. And she will come into power. She only is in on the throne for five to six years. That's it. And during that time, as you know, that Mary, the child in between, Henry and Catherine of Aragon will be the Catholic queen, will reverse everything that had happened since his, her father's time. Henry VIII and the Edwards, everything will be reversed. During that time, 288 people will be born. And today's sermon really is about this book. And I will even read from this book. And, and the title of it is Five English Reformers by J.C. Ryle. And the picture here is young Edward 
And the preacher here is Hugh Latimer. And we are going to talk about him. He's preaching to this young boy, pro-Reformation king. And, and, and he will soon die. And everything will be reversed. And I remember talking about this few years back while we were meeting in Fresh Meadows School. But it was not in the context of the Lord's Supper. In this book, very first chapter, the title is, Why Were Our Reformers Burned? is the question. That's how he opens up and he recounts five people who were burned at the stake under the reign of the Bloody Mary. 280 people were burned at the stake, one archbishop, four bishops, 21 clergymen, 55 women, four children, and the rest men. There are many forms of execution. But burning at the stake will be one of the most painful uh, methods of execution. Now he asks, J.C. Ryle asks, and it's a history book, asks this question, why were our, their history, our reformers burned? And he makes this point, and listen to this, please. Great indeed would be our mistake if we suppose that they suffered for the vague charge of refusing submission to the Pope or desiring to maintain the independence of the Church of England. Nothing of that kind. The principal reason why they were burned was because they refused one of the peculiar doctrines of the Romish church. On that doctrine, in almost every case, hinged their life or death. If they admitted it, they might live. If they refused it, they must die. The doctrine in question was the real presence of body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is, corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present on the so-called altar so soon as the mystical wars that passed the lips of the priests? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. The first one he talks about is John Rogers, and Steve Lawson often talks about him, how he carries the, I don't know, somebody gave him a piece of paper that has blood of John Rogers or something like that in his blood. But John Rogers, and all these men, by the way, Bloody Mary will not bring a pastor from the countryside. All these men are best-known scholars, experts in the Bible, preachers, and Bible translators, the famous people of the land at the time, to make the case, make a point. John Rogers was such, and he was an English reformer, forced to go up in flame. A London minister, vicar, and reader of divinity at St. Paul's, theologian. He was burned 
in Smithfield on Monday, the 4th of February, 1555, one of these cold winter days. Well, the first one, you know, I've never really read about the accounts of the martyrs, and much of it comes from Fox, X-E, Fox Book of Martyrs, and you could look it up. And John Rogers' account made me really cry. It's really sad to see. You, you have to read it to see. He was burned. And later he recounts, John Rogers, before he dies, he says what happened to him, what they, what they the tribunal asked him, the court. He said, John Rogers said, I was asked, whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ that was born of the Virgin Mary and was hanged on the cross and really and substantially. I answered, I think it to be false. I cannot understand really and substantially to signify otherwise than corporally, but corporally Christ is only in heaven, and so Christ cannot be corporally in your sacrament. He said then, and he was burned. The second person he talks about is Bishop Hooper. And he responded to that same question. Master Hooper said plainly that there was none such, neither did he believe any such a thing. So he was condemned and burned. Roland Taylor, the person mentioned here, he says in his own word, the second cause why I was condemned as a heretic is that I denied transubstantiation and concomitation, two juggling words whereby papists believe that Christ's natural body is made of bread and the Godhead to be joined thereto. Because I denied a foresaid doctrine, I was judged a heretic. So he was burned. Last one, John Bradford. Because I deny transubstantiation, which is the darling of the devil and daughter and heir to Antichrist's religion, he was burned. So all these men, the leading figures of the English Reformation, which was undone by Bloody Mary, and she dies a few years later, and Elizabeth will come, that famous virgin queen, Queen Elizabeth, and she will be kind of neutral. So all these men, the question is simple, as you have heard. Do you or do you not believe transubstantiation? Is the question, what's the question? Each and every time they denied it, and they had to pay for it with their own lives, going up in the flame. Ryle says, J.C. Ryle says, why is this important, the Lord's Supper, transubstantiation? Why, why do we care about that? Because, he says, the Romish doctrine of the real presence strikes at the very root of the gospel and is the very citadel and keep of poppery. And he says, you spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when he died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not a perfect and complete thing. See, Catholic Mass, you, you break the bread and you pray and the, 
And it, it, it becomes, in essence, in substance, and Christ's body is literally sacrificed. I mean, that, that takes away from Christ's Christ once and for all suffering. That is why it strikes at the heart of the gospel. This is a gospel issue. The second reason, you spoil the priestly office of Christ. Because if there are priests that could offer acceptable sacrifice of God, there are Catholic priests that takes away, robs his glory. Third reason, you spoil the scriptural doctrine of Christian ministry. You exalt sinful men into the position of mediator between God and man. Talking about Catholic priests. Last one, but the not least, he says, you overthrow the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. Why is that important? Why do we have to care about Christ's nature, human nature? If the body born of the Virgin Mary can be in more places than one at the same time, it is not a body like our own. What is the significance of that? Then Christ cannot redeem us. Because only that which is assumed will be redeemed, as you know. And Christ's human nature should be, must be like ours, except sin, for us to be redeemed. So, as we have seen last week, Christ's human nature cannot be in multiple places. Think about that. But it's through divine nature. Yet when divine nature is present, somehow in his God's great work, whole person is present as we have talked about. Now what is, when you think about this, what I've told you. Obvious question is, is the Lord's Supper important? You may ask. Like we could read this couple of verses and every last Sunday we could drink the cup and eat the bread. And think about Christ. But when you take this English Reformation into account, 280 people burned at the stake. I mean, some people paid for this with their own lives. And we must say this is important. And I want you to also think about this. Did you notice that they were not really asking the, were not asking them, these men, what your view is regarding sola fide. They're not asking who's the head of the church, Church of England. Is it King Henry? Or is it Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mary? Or is it Pope, Vicar of Christ? Or is it somebody else? Our Ligonier statement perfectly has said, nobody else but Christ is the head of the church. They don't ask these questions, but they ask about the Lord's Supper. Think about that. And I want you to see the difference. When you and I, we are the heirs of Reformation, right? Protestant church. This is the Presbyterian church. How do we normally think about salvation or church? I dare say, we think about salvation in terms of ideas, I am not saying this is simply an idea, but think about that. We debate about sola, five solas of reformation. Ideas. You believe, you repent, and you, you agree, you nod, you acknowledge the statements, the confessions, the doctrines, the debates. That's how you think. That's how we think when we think about the church or the church life, or the purity of the church, the gospel, we think about in that fashion, intangible ideas. Once again, I'm not saying this is simply an idea. You know how Catholics think? 
Catholics think about the church and salvation in terms of tangible things. That's the difference. Unless you come from Catholic background, you will not understand. We want to debate. But they think about the church and salvation through what? Through the sacraments. You must understand that. That's why they are not asking theological questions, even though there, there might have been some other ideas. Why? From Catholic perspective, because of what they believe and confess about the Lord's Supper, which is visible, which is tangible, and the essence and the substance is being transformed in front of you, and the outward elements, though the accidents remain the same, double miracles are going on right in front of you, they want to know about the sacraments. So why we think about church and salvation in terms of those promises of God and the words of God, they think about the church life through the sacraments. And the traditional term would be sacerdotalism or sacramentalism. They want to see that. So let me just quote a couple of uh, places from Catholic Catechism. Sacramentalism of the Catholics. And there's a chapter, The Sacraments of Salvation. And it says this, Celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they signify. For them, for us, what is sign and what is signified, there is only sacramental union is the language, spiritual. But for them, if they celebrate it right, sacraments confer the grace that they signify. It actually carries, and the word that you should be familiar with is they are talking always about infusion of grace instead of imputation of grace. And the following section, they say this, the church affirms that, Catholic church, the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Necessary. What that means is without you receiving the sacraments, you cannot be saved is what the idea is. The, the sacraments are necessary for your salvation. We will say it is vitally important but because it does not carry that salvific power in and of themselves, for us, what's more important is faith. For them, really, the sacraments will confer the grace. And after I looked up the footnote. Where, how did they get the idea? Footnote. And I looked up down, at, down at the bottom. Their citation is the Council of Trent, 1547, and some paragraph. So sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit given by Christ proper to each sacrament. The Catholic Church think about the church life salvation in terms of sacraments, liturgy of sacraments. Everything is about sacraments. You go to church to receive sacraments. You go to church to receive baptism, confirmation, and penance, as we will talk about in the Reformation Months. So that's how it was, and the Lord's Supper was the litmus test. But as you have heard, it is so much more than simply, oh, let's remember Christ. 
And though we have talked about Catholic side, um, we have not investigated our position deeply, but I will just leave it there. And, and I want to end uh, this section, the historical overview, what really is a simple Simple, sample chapters from this book. And if you can, I will put up a link on our Twitter, but I want you to get it and read it. After I read this book, only recently, 2016, I thought about a few things. First was, you may laugh at this idea, but after reading this entire thing and cried a few times, and how many of you would cry over the book? But it made me cry, really. Um, and first thing that came to my mind was pain tolerance. <laughs> really, that was my first thing. Are you scared about death? How you are going to die? Cancer? Accidents? Whatever way that you are going to go, the fact is we are going to die. And um, if you're like me, You'll be scared about those moments, will you not? Whatever pain, physical pains that you go through in life, whatever that is, back pain, I don't know. But when I, after, after I read this, whenever I go to hospital, <laughs> whatever it is, even a even, even little needle in my arm or something like that, I think about these. Compared to them, how bad could it be? was always something that got stuck in my head. I just want you to think about that. Second thing was this. All these men, they were locked up in the Tower of London. I want to go there. I want to go and see. I want to go to England. I want to go to Great Britain. One place I want to go is that place. They were all locked up. And um, as I was thinking about these men, what, what did they do? And they would prefer beheading over against the burning because it was so painful. And Thomas Cranmer would recant because he was so scared, that great archbishop of Canterbury. And he would recant because he was so scared. But later he will admit and will die as a martyr. And I thought about Christ's Gethsemane. And I thought Christ's Gethsemane was his London Tower. Before he will be led away to the cross, Christ will pray. And I'm going to read you a couple of sections. I know this might not be the easiest way to address this, but I know not every one of you will get this book or read about this. So I want to give you a couple of accounts. First was that all these men, these famous men, were locked up at the same time in London Tower, and there was no room, so everybody was put together in the same room. What do you think they will do? I'm going to delete this. <laughs> but the most famous one you could think about, they are locked up in London Tower, and this is what it says here. Latimer, Cranmer, Ridley, Bradford, those four were confined in one chamber. And... And Latimer says, they together read over the New Testament with great deliberation, that is debate, and painful study, and unanimously agreed 
that transubstantiation was not to be found in it. These four great men were doing Bible study. Scholar, these famous preachers, they, they did not really need to reread, but they would read, they would do the Bible study, and their conclusion, their conclusion, there is no transubstantiation. And for Latimer, Hugh Latimer, you know, Hugh Latimer was Cambridge scholar. He was Bishop of Worcester, chaplain to King Edward, the man who's preaching. Very famous and influential man. He did this. Much of his time he spent two years in the tower was spent in reading the Bible. He says himself, I read the New Testament over seven times while I was in prison. Much of his time was spent in prayer, just like Christ. And he prayed that God had appointed him to be a preacher and professor of his word, so he would give him grace to stand to his doctrine till his death. Another was, another prayer that he would pray is that God would, of his mercy, restore the gospel of Christ to the realm once again. He often repeated these two words once again. The third was that God would preserve the princess Elizabeth and make her a comfort to England. That was his prayer. Uh, next and the final section that I want you to simply hear about is that Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they were burned back to back on the same stake. If you Google it, this is very famous scene in the book of Fox Book of Martyr, and you will see the uh, picture that they uh, drew about that that um, execution. These two old men will be tied together on the same stake in Oxford, and they were burned on the 16th of October, 1555. Ridley was walking first, and Latimer was walking to the stake, and Ridley turns back and he says, Oh, be ye there. Yeah, said Master Latimer, as fast as I can follow. So they are walking toward the stake. And when they come to the stake, they kneel down and they kiss the stake. Ridley comes to Latimer. And Ridley says to him this, Be of good cheer, my brother. For God will either assuage the fury of the flames or else strengthen us to abide it. And they have to listen to another sermon to humiliate them. And somebody by the name Smith will preach transubstantiation in front of them. And they now have to take off their clothes and they are about to be chained and listen to this. Then the Smith took a chain of iron. Why? Obviously, rope would not do. Took a chain of iron and fastened it about both Ridley's and Latimer's middles to one stake. So here, he, they were chained together here in the body and tightened it. And Ridley said to the staple who's knocking that iron chain to the staple, he said, Good fellow, knock it in hard. For flesh will have its course. Right? So don't let me 
pull it away because I'm afraid that I might do that. That's what he's saying. And a bag of gunpowder was tied about the neck of each. You know why that was the case? To expedite that whole process. And the final words on, for them is this. Uh, Latimer, Hugh Latimer said this. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And they died. So brothers and sisters, I know, I know, we know, we are not going to go in that fashion in this country, not in any time soon. Uh, but this really uh, makes us pause and think about our life our faith in Christ, how serious that is. And all these men, they were not fools. They could have simply said, I recant. And, and they could have walked away. But there were the martyrs who laid down their lives for the faith. It speaks to us. I hope that we may not replicate the same situation but we should all have a similar faith in Christ's power. I pray that you and I may remain true to the cause of the gospel of Christ and remain faithful to him, Christ, who went all the way. Let's pray.